This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is brought to you by Line and Sight. Line and Sight is an innovative community where anglers can sign up, post their own articles, follow other anglers, and earn points online. Devoted to the sport, Line and Sight promotes all methods of fishing year-round with videos, interviews, how-to guides, plus the latest and greatest in product reviews. You'll even find regular giveaways of high-end product as well as fresh weekly content about all things fishing. Check them out at www.lineandsight.com. Miles Nolte is a writer based out of Montana. He is also a guide, teacher, and the fly fishing editor at Gray's Sporting Journal. I've been a fan of Miles since reading his brilliant book, The Alaska Chronicles, and I was eager to hear more about how he came to be the writer he is today. I met up with Miles in New Zealand, where we discussed writing, guiding, and fly fishing films. I was born and raised on the island of Oahu. In In Hawaii? Hawaii. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Are your parents Hawaiian? (laughs) No. There's no Hawaiian blood, as you can probably see from the color of my skin. Yeah. (laughs) My parents were both, uh, they both moved there in the 70s, kind of on that that hippie migration to Hawaii. Okay, so they weren't born there. They were not born there, no. If you're born in Hawaii, though, are you technically Hawaiian? Negative. You You have to be. So it's like the indigenous people of British Columbia. Exactly. I'm born in BC, but I'm not. First Nations. Right. It would be like, it would be comparable to First Nations. But I'm still a British Columbian. So what would you be if you're not a Hawaiian? The term used locally is Kama'aina, meaning essentially you are, you are from there, but you are not Hawaiian. Wow. Okay. And where does fishing enter your life? Probably when I was about four. 
and and not through a necessarily normal channel. I, I cannot confirm this. This is just like family lore. Sure. And apparently I went to my mother and told her I wanted to go fishing. She had no idea where I had come up with this idea. Nobody in the family fished. They'd never taken me fishing. They'd never shown me anything to do with fishing. Strangely enough, we were on a, a vacation visiting some of her friends in Bozeman. And there's a photo of me at four catching trout out of highlight reservoir with like, you know, a little Snoopy rod or something. Yeah. And a, a, a whole limit of trout on the grass in front of me. And I, I, I had no memory of that until, you know, many, many years later when I moved to Bozeman and my mom said, oh, I found this photo. You know, I think oh. this is the first time you ever fished. <laughs> That's cool though. Yeah. And, uh, and then I spent summers. Uh, my mom has really close friends who have cabins up in northern Wisconsin. And we spent summers up there. And that was where I, I learned to do the freshwater thing. And then had some friends around Hawaii who got me into saltwater fishing. And just kept at it. Is there any freshwater fishing in Hawaii? There is. It's not very good. Right. But there's some largemouth bass fishing and some peacock bass fishing. And I guess technically there's one river on Kauai that has trout. But I've never fished it. Introduced, I'm assuming? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What about the peacocks? Would they be introduced? Yeah, all introduced. Okay, got it. There are no catchable native freshwater species in Hawaii. I think there are like some little tiny native freshwater fish, but I'm not positive about that. Okay, that's fair. So you went to school, regular upbringing? Yep, pretty standard. Went Mm -hmm. Went to school... I mean, other than the surfing, you know, and by having the beach really close, get done with school, go to the beach, which was probably not that different from, you know, your upbringing, going to the river, going to the mountains. It was just where we played. Close by, yeah. yeah. So you were an only child. I think I caught that at dinner. Yep. I, I still am, in fact. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so your parents were also on the one and done train? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I I can't say that we've ever had a long, heart-to-heart conversation about, was I that terrible that you didn't want to do it again? <laughs> right. <laughs> But they didn't. There, there were no, no more came subsequently. So, were you that terrible? Were you pretty well behaved? Uh, I think I was pretty good. I don't know. I mean, how do you compare your own childhood behavior to others? I don't know. I mean, how, what would you describe yourself in high school? Were you quiet? Were you a ladies' man? Were you oh, no. comical? No, I was. I was searching for for any form of acceptance that I could find wherever I could find it. Mostly in high school, I was a really awkward teenager. Oh, were you? Oh, deeply. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and like it was the '90s, so you know that angsty, tortured. I kind of want to be Kurt Cobain, but I don't have anything I to actually be upset do. about. Yep, yep. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> okay, at least you could admit it. Oh, absolutely. And there are photos to prove this. Could that so. have had something to do with your desire to go fishing? Because it is kind of a lone man sport. I mean, I think that might be a stretch. It's possible that there are elements of my personality that connected in both of those ways but um you're more I just mean, hanging out in a dark room re- yeah yeah there's a lot of dark room <laughs> a lot of like loud music yeah long hair it wasn't it wasn't a good look okay i gotta see these pictures <laughs> they exist <laughs> so yes. did you go to college after you graduated i did i did the um, pretty standard track really and um which was if, if i could do something differently it would probably be that because i i was not prepared to go off to college. I had a great experience. I went to school in Southern California. I got a good education, but I would have gotten more out of it if I had been a little bit older and a little bit more mature. Mm, fair enough. But yeah, I, I got an English degree in, uh, in one of the Claremont schools in Southern California and didn't do much because I didn't have very much money 
And in that particular part of LA, if you don't have a car and you don't have much money, there's not much to do. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd bum rides up to the mountains or the desert or the beach whenever I could with friends. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I went to class because I had nothing better to do most of the time. Oh, ouch. Okay. <laughs> Why Southern California? Um, a couple of reasons. I think the my my mom, when I was looking at colleges, I think told me, you can go anywhere that you get in and we can afford that isn't in New York or L.A. So I had to go to L.A., clearly. <laughs> uh, but it was also, I, I really liked the program at that school. It was like a strong social justice orientation of, of of the way that their educational philosophy went. And that that really resonated with me at that time in my life. And and it, it was a, honestly, it was by far the best school that I got into. And I don't exactly know how I got into it, but I wasn't going to, not attend. Yeah, no, that's really responsible, especially for that age. Because you would have been what nineteen. I was seventeen when I went to college. No kidding. Yeah. Wow, that's really young. It, yeah, it was. It was young. I mean, it's hard to look back and have regrets. Like what? No, what no. career or what degree would you have gone for if you could do it again? If I could do it again, uh, I don't know. I think I think having an engineering degree would certainly be helpful and useful and, and, and would have saved me from waiting a lot of tables, which wound up happening a lot in my life. But I, I'm, I'm not unhappy with the education I got. Like, I think I learned how to be a really solid critical thinker. I learned how to approach problems in multiple ways. I learned how to respect different people's perspectives on a situation right. and think my way through things. And so a liberal arts degree is good for that. Yeah. And you know what? You said you're waiting tables and I obviously understand that I did the same thing. It makes you really charismatic and you really can learn people's behavior by being mm. a waiter or a bartender. So if you factor in that with all of the aspects of what you learned in your degree, um, this is going to sound really bad, but it would make you an excellent fishing guide. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely, it probably did. But I think it also helps out with me being a writer. Of course it does. Yeah. yeah. Well, you'd be able to tell a story really well. And I think just meeting a lot of different people it makes for a, a much more interesting life. Of course. Well, let's get to that. So you go to college and you're yeah. fishing through college at this point a little bit when you can bump a ride? When I could. And that was that was actually kind of when I that was when I first caught a trout, actually. Up until then I'd never okay. caught any trout in my life. And I had learned to fly cast from uh, from one of my uncles. Or well, I call him my uncle. He's not actually related to me, but one of my mom's good friends. And is this a Wisconsin was, guy? Was, exactly in Wisconsin. Got and it. He. It was basically something to keep me occupied from fishing off for fishing off the dock when they I couldn't go out bass fishing or walleye fishing or musky fishing with them. Like, right. This kid is insane about fishing. Here's a, a fiberglass rod and a foam spider. Catch all the bluegill you want. Oh, I love it. So, how old were you when you were doing that? I probably started that about seven. Um, but I had some friends in college who were into fly fishing and there isn't much good fishing in Southern California, but there are a few rivers around. So we'd go from time to time. Mm-hmm. And that was when I kind of, I, I moved my focus more into first of all, trout and rivers and fly fishing more exclusively. Okay. So then you graduate college, what, 21, 22? Yeah, I was 21. Oh my God. That's so young. Yeah. That's really young. I didn't even start going to college till I was 21. Yeah, that's what I should have done. Well, depending on how you look at it. Well, yeah. No, just in the sense that I don't think I got as much out of the first two years as That's I probably could have. Pro- you probably didn't. I definitely didn't. Because mm-hmm. when did you start chasing girls? 
I mean, I was chasing girls. He was socially girls. awkward. I, I wasn't successful at it. I mean, I was chasing girls from the time I was probably 13, but that doesn't mean uh, okay. I was like, successful at that in any way. So you were a socially awkward guy who still chased. Oh, absolutely. I lived in the friend zone for like all my teen years. Okay. I was really comfortable <laughs> there, and I hung out with a lot of women in that space. Yeah. It, it, was, it was all right, actually. Okay, got it. So then, okay, so you're pretty normal, sounds like, except you graduate college really early. And where do you go from there? Uh, I took a job teaching in Botswana. Oh, wow. That was my first job out of college. I had I had done a study abroad program there when I was in college, and that was later on in my college degree period when I was I was much more focused and I was I was a pretty good student and I loved my time in Botswana and in Southern Africa and it was it was really a, it was kind of a a pivotal moment for me in terms of my own maturation yeah. and getting out of my small bubble of existence and getting out of the western part of the United States which mm-hmm. is where I'd spent all my life and so when I graduated I got offered a job there and I immediately took it and so at 21 I left and packed up and moved to Habarone, Botswana. How long were you there for? I was there for about a year and a half. Okay, eye-opening to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 also very much confidence building. Yeah. Because I was fine. I mean, I could hold down a job and I found friends and I found community and I lived in a very different place with a with very different people from what I had known and it was great. Right. Was your mom freaking out the whole time? The whole time. Yeah. yeah. No, I think one of the worst conversations I've had with her was when I told her I'm moving to Botswana. While you're there in your early 20s, do you start wondering what you want to do with yourself, with your life? Uh, at that point in my life, I was pretty arrogant and in, in the sense that like I think I'm going to be able to pull this off. Pull, whatever, Whatever that was, like having a life that is going to be fine. I'm going to be able to make enough money. I didn't have big desires for financial success. My right. goal had been, and, and really from a pretty early age, my goal was to do interesting things and live a life that I found to be entertaining, interesting, mm-hmm. and story worthy. So I that was what was motivating me, what was driving me. And I, I realized that's, that's a very privileged place to come from because I, I hadn't ever, you know, it's not like I came from a ton of money, but I'd never worried about where my next meal was coming from or how I was going to pay the rent. So to me, I was just confident enough to think, yeah, I'm going to figure that out. Right. That's going to be fine. But that's a big moment in your time, in your life. Oh yeah. So what about writing at this point? Are you thinking, I want to write a book in my future? Was it on the horizon at that point? I always wanted to be a writer. Like for that, that was the only job I can remember wanting to have as why, a kid. Why? Was there something in particular that you could remember? I was good with words. And that, that, I think the positive reinforcement I got around that just mm-hmm. made me feel good. And I remember, you know, getting praised for it in school, like back in grammar school. And so I think that was part of what did it was just like you like doing what you're good at. Yeah, what you're good at and what people give you attention for. And so that happened. And then in college, I was, you know, full on. Actually, when I first started college, I thought I was going to be a political science major. But then when I failed out of like the intro class, I yeah. thought that probably wasn't going to work. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So um, you're probably happier. Here. It wasn't a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I wound up getting an English degree sort of by default. I had to go see a, a counselor somewhere in the middle. And she's, and I said, what, what, what does it look like I'm working toward? Because I'd just been taking classes that were interesting. Oh, you could transfer some of them over. And Well, and she, she was just looking at the classes I'd taken and said, it looks like you're working toward an English degree. So that's what I did. But anyway, one of my mentors in, in college was is, is a fantastic writer. And 
when I graduated, he sent me this long letter and it, it said a lot of things, but one of the things it said was, you know, you are in love with words and you are in love with the idea of yourself loving words and you have nothing to say. Oh. And my advice to you is to quit writing. No way. That's a really harsh letter. Absolutely. But it was it was written from a place of love and respect. And he was absolutely right. But why didn't he tell you to go and find something to say rather than to encourage you to stop the dream altogether? Well, that's that's essentially what he was doing. I mean, he, what he was way. saying was saying, like, <laughs> you don't have anything to say, so quit trying so hard to be a writer. Go live your life. Oh, uh, okay. I see. Well, and, he's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I didn't hear it that way at the time. I heard it as, you know, this person who's a mentor doesn't think I'm any good and I should just give up and, and I'm, you know, I'm screwed. So I'll go figure something else out. Do you still stay in touch with him? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I have. I mean, we haven't spoken in a couple of years, but I, I've kept him up to date on what's been going on and, you know, the different things I've done. Has he read your book? I have no idea. Have you sent him a copy? Oh, I never, I never sent him a copy. I definitely let him know that it was coming out. You should send him a copy. I probably should. Um, <laughs> let's work our way towards that okay. book. What happens from Africa? Uh, so Africa came back, spent four months just fishing and dirtbagging it with a buddy, started in Southern California, wound up in Central Maine all the way back. Just all we did was fish. Perfect. And drink a lot of beer. Yep. Everyone needs that stage. Yep. Um, and sleeping on people's couches and in the dirt—that was—I mean—that was the whole four months. Uh, and I was supposed to move to Venezuela after that. Oh, what for? A friend, really good friend of mine, had was opening up a language institute and okay. wanted me to come help. That fell apart two weeks before I was supposed to leave. It was right when Chavez tried to socialize the oil industry there, and the whole country kind of imploded. And anyway, two weeks before I'm supposed to leave for Venezuela, I've got my plane ticket and I can't go because my friends mm. have fled the country. So I didn't know what to do. And I decided I'd move to Montana to go fishing for a little bit and figure that out. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd be there for about four months, and that was 15 years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. So moved there, waited tables a lot, fished a lot, hunted a lot, skied a lot, and then ultimately kind of realized that I, I really wanted to fish in Alaska. Oh, why? Why Alaska? I, well, I think that at least for a lot of the, the – at least for North American fly anglers, I think Alaska holds a pretty hallowed – place in our mythology. And I think I have this memory of my dad going and fishing in Alaska one time without me, even though he wasn't that into fishing and being super pissed about it when I was like eight. Cause I'm like, he doesn't even like fishing. I like fishing, <laughs> yeah. but it, it held a pretty significant place in my brain. And I was seeing all these things in, in magazines and, you know, there weren't very many fishing videos then at that point, but I, I knew I wanted to fish in Alaska and I knew I couldn't afford it. So Figured I might as well try and get a job there mm-hmm. and started applying for guide jobs in Alaska. and For $2 an hour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can never wrap my head around how poorly paid Alaskan guides are. Because oh, in terrible. British Columbia, I mean, it's 25 bucks an hour. And granted, that's Canadian dollars, but that's pretty standard. A $25 an hour guide, you wouldn't pay anyone less than that. That's fantastic. And then I hear you guys. I mean, it's like some sort of un- – it's like 8 or $10 an hour or something, isn't it? Well, it wasn't hourly, at least not where I worked. You got paid monthly, and it seemed like it was a good deal. Until you break it down because yeah. your days are not eight hours. No, they're more like 18 sometimes. Yeah, that's fair. So, yeah, we pay our guys 200 – it was 200 bucks a day. 
you know, that's on, on top of expenses. But okay, so walk me through when you get to, a, or well, who hires you? Which lodge did you end up working with? I got hired at a lot of different lodges, actually. I, I, because I, I was, I think. All I can guess is that most of the guys putting out applications to go fish in Alaska have trouble stringing sentences together. At least I could make myself sound good on paper. So I got I got a lot of different offers, and um, some of whom some of the lodge owners I've become friends with subsequently and have visited their lodges and written them up and you know kind of gotten into that network. But I'm, I don't know if I should say the lodge. I I, I never mentioned the name of the lodge in the well, book. Well, don't don't say the name because I want to be completely honest about the book. Okay, you can leave the name out because I don't want you to to censor yourself. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. But um, we need to just talk about how I first heard of you, and it was honestly through this book that we keep referencing. And I was telling you earlier at dinner, I had a friend in Australia who said, you've got to read this guy's book. It's incredibly well-written and it's very entertaining. But I don't know. I mean, I'm a guy, I was a guide. I don't know if I wanted to read about another guide's days. The last thing I want to do is read about guiding when I'm not guiding. And I picked up your book and it was just finally this hallelujah moment. This person knows how to write. He's hilarious. He's honest. And he's finally airing the dirty laundry of what it's like to actually be a guide. Uh, let's talk about the chapters. I mean, when how many seasons had you guided before you decided you were going to write that book? That was that was my second season. Okay. Um, and I didn't decide to write a book. That's not how that came about. Oh, uh, we'll talk about this is the Drake thing, right? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, well, first before you say that, so you get the job, you start guiding. Yeah, I got I got the job that that first year and I went up there and I was I was I was enthralled by all the elements of it to be in the place that I was, we were in a really wilderness camp and it was, it was truly one of the most beautiful places that I've been able to go to. And I've, I've been lucky. I've gotten to go to a lot of really beautiful places. Mm-hmm. Um, I would wake up every day and, and look around and go, this is amazing. And then, and then also go, Oh my God, I can't believe what I have to do today. This is going to be just miserable. <laughs> but I, I loved it despite the, the massive amounts of discomfort and, and, I, what I ended up coming away with at the end was I cannot make up stories as ridiculous as what's happening on a day-to-day basis in this camp. <laughs> so like, true. I cannot invent this. Yeah. I'm not that creative. <laughs> right. So I need to write this shit down. Yeah. But that first season, I was honestly, I was so overwhelmed and so tired, I didn't write it very much of a day. I totally understand. I mean, it doesn't even, at least when I was guiding, it got dark at night. Oh, yeah. Well, it didn't get dark there, but we would work so late. That's what I mean. You guys would work crazy hours yeah. because there's just, I mean, clients want to fish late. And then when you get home, you've got to do your real, you know, the rest of your guide jobs. And it's a and, lot of work in Alaska. And the camp there, the guy that we worked for was uh, unique and maybe not unique. Maybe this is relatively common, but I've heard from other guides in Alaska that it doesn't happen like this. But we, my first season there particularly, he decided that he wanted to build a house, a permanent structure um, above the camp. For his family, so that they would come out, mm-hmm. and, and so he was going to hire you guys to do. It. He wasn't going to hire us. He already had us, <laughs> right? <laughs> so there was no hiring. We were on we were on salary, so we would get up in the morning and get everything ready and go guide for nine hours or whatever it was. Come back, scrub out the boats, gas them up, clean everything up, fix anything that needed to be fixed, eat some food, you know, serve the the guests yeah. and clear the tables, do the dishes, and then go pound nails for another four hours. <laughs> And like frame up his house and and sleep for a little bit and then start it over again. And it was it was every day, seven days a week. Yeah, no. That, that's when you tell him to go pound sand while you're pounding nails. I mean, I would have loved to, but you're there. Like you don't have a choice. You are in this camp. Like <laughs> yeah. and 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 you're as ridiculous as it is, I, I 
I got to be close with some some of the other guides, and it became kind of like a, a point of pride and camaraderie, right, for us that we would do this and we could do this, and and we were together in our like anger and hatred about <laughs> having to do this, and that right. helped build these deep friendships. Yeah, where it was like, oh, that son of a bitch. Yeah. God. <laughs> Oh, let's go. Let's go frame up that wall, and then we can drink some more beer. I mean, oh, I'd love to hire you guys. You sound like the perfect workers. <laughs> you yeah, still get the job done. He thought he had that figured out. I mean, the the most ridiculous thing that happened at that camp, though, in terms of his brilliance and also unscrupulousness, was he had a guide school. Right, the first year I was there, <laughs> and these poor kids. Oh no! Would pay him <gasps> like four grand. And he'd bring them out to the camp. They'd pay him four grand, and he would work them like dogs. He's genius. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is an evil genius. That's true. No, it's horrible because you end up working till till dark. And what time does it get dark out in the summer there? Uh, I mean, it was late. It was after midnight. Yeah. You'd get a little dip of, you know, twilight into dark, but it wouldn't last long. Mm, slave labor. Yeah. Okay, so the second year, did you go somewhere else? Nope, I stayed. No, you didn't. <laughs> I did. I stayed on the second year. There's a great story from the third year. We can get to that later. But okay. yeah, no, I had I had the relationships there. I knew the I knew the ropes. I knew the other guides. I knew the clients. I knew the river. I loved that river, mm, yeah. and I really was close to some of the people there. And he offered me more money to you come back. Said sure, because yeah. the thing is, after nobody, I mean, you'd have to really guide to get this, but. For me, anyway, it was always, I started in the beginning, I'd look around every day and be like, I'm getting paid for this. This is amazing. And then you start to get tired, your sleep starts to get compromised, you get some dickheads. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get to the point where you're counting down days. And then there's, I think it was usually like three or four weeks left in the season where I'd be like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And you buckle down and you just get through it and you get through it. And then at the end of it, you're just like, I'm never doing this again. And then a Month goes by, two months, however much time goes by, and you're like, you know what? I miss it. I can't wait to get back. It's like we forget. It's like childbirth. You just forget how miserable it was. I can't speak to that, but I, I can <laughs> I can believe that it has to be somewhat similar in terms right. of the amnesia that you put on yourself. Yeah. So is that what happened to you? It, it, to some extent, yes. Um, that's more what happens to me now. Okay. But then I I was so enthralled with that place and being up there. Yeah. And the the working was a pain in the ass and the guiding was sometimes a pain in the ass. But I wanted to go back there. Okay. I wanted to be among like in that ecosystem. I wanted to be driving those jet boats as much as I, I have like a problem. And I pro I do think from an ecological point of view, we probably shouldn't be running near as many jet boats as we are in those wilderness systems. But God damn, it's fun. And like the adrenaline of that. And when you're doing this, like two o'clock in the morning, and you got to haul 85 tons of fuel up from the barge that's at the mouth of the river, and every boat in the fleet is running after dark, and it's terrible, and you're exhausted, but there's an adrenaline there that you just don't get anywhere else. (laughs) But I didn't get anywhere else (laughs) in my life. And so I loved that. And yeah. I, I I did. I really loved doing it, and I also am happy that I don't do it anymore. So is this second year when you started documenting this? It is. Okay, yep. and how did that come to be? So by that point, I had started writing again a little bit, and I'd, I'd written for the Drake some. Mm-hmm. And I I said to Tom, I, commu- I wrote an email to Tom, Tom by at the Drake, and said, hey, man, I, 
I can't make up these stories. Like, right. We gotta, we gotta put these up. And we talked about putting together a blog, and it was always a plan, and it never quite came together, and until the middle of the season. So I just started writing it and putting it on the uh, the forum of mm. the Drake. Oh, with all those polite gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. They're such a bunch of fuckwits. They really are. And they, it was. <laughs> I have to say, it was, I think maybe this is me waxing about the past. I, I feel like it was better than I don't go there. I haven't. I honestly nothing against Drake, but I haven't spent any time there in many, many years. Yeah. Not. I mean, the forum. Yeah. Um. But early on in that, like. 2006, 2007 period, some of the people who were regulars on that forum became like friends of mine in real life. Yeah, I could see that. And and they were, you know, they were kind of assholes, but not not like just trolling assholes. Like I hear it's gotten to be sometimes. But, but if you're actually in that tight knit group, yeah. then yeah, I'm sure they were probably good to you. They were. Yeah. Well, not at first, but yeah. you know, I started writing interesting <laughs> stories and then all of a sudden people liked me. It was weird. Yeah, I wonder how that happened. Yeah, I don't know. And putting up pictures of big fish. So did you and Tom decide you're going to start? Like, did you have your own thread on the forum? I created a thread because you can create threads. Yeah. Yeah. And so I created a thread and just went with it and kept writing at it and whittling away at it. And it was sort of my catharsis at the end of the day. And it was easier my second season. The first season I had to share a tent with three other men. Oh, Okay. But that was part of the reason to come back second season. One, better pay. Second, I got my own weather port. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. like really moved up in the world. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> you made $3 an hour and, and you were I able to sleep tent. by yourself. <laughs> it was grand. Oh, that's amazing. So how, did you get internet then at the lodge? Yeah, and that was the other thing that, that happened was that the, uh, the boss had put in satellite internet at the camp. Like we didn't have flush toilets. But we had satellite internet. Got to keep the guests happy. Exactly. Well, mm-hmm. I think that was actually more for him. Oh, okay. But anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. Sorry, I'm just gonna stop. <laughs> oh yeah. No, let's not go there. So, the, so were you posting every day, or I, I wasn't posting every day, but I was trying to keep up with it at least once a week, if not more. Okay. And and it was it 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 really was nice for me. And I, I have to say, if I had been just writing. I don't know if I would have been able to keep the motivation, but because I had an audience that was giving me immediate feedback, so I knew these people were reading it. I knew that they were getting something out of it because people really liked it. Mm-hmm. That motivated me to want to keep going. Like I'd be exhausted by the end of the day. I wouldn't want to write, but I have stories, and I had an audience for yeah. the first time in my life. When was it published? It was published in 2009. Okay. So, I mean, I've gone on to do a lot of other writing work since then, but that really launched my career. So then what made you think, you know what, I should put this into paper? I didn't. Um, Tosh Brown started Departure Publishing right around that same time, and Tosh contacted me and said, I think this is great. I want to make it into a book. So there was a lot of work to be done to polish it from what it was just, you know, internet ramblings. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I spent a couple months and... Worked on it, and and we put out a book. That was the first title that Departure Publishing put out. It's fantastic. So I'll put up a link, and it's actually on my reading list on my website. If people go to the website where you see this podcast and go to reading list, you'll see it. I can't remember which category it's under, but it's on there anyway. It's got raving reviews from me. (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah, you bet. Coming up, Miles and I continue our conversation. Again, be sure to check out Line Insight at lineinsight.com. With over 80 writers, Line Insight is committed to recruiting new writers each month and their Facebook presence is growing just as rapidly. Be sure to check them out on social media or at www.lineinsight.com. Okay, so where do you go from there? 
Uh, yeah. After that, um, <laughs> I'm assuming you went back to keep guide. Like, how many years did you guide in Alaska total? So I went back the next year. Here's a here's a fun story and another good reason why I cannot name the person who uh, <laughs> I used to work for. You must have had a lot of people being like, "He's talking about me," because there's girls in that book. There's girlfriends. There's coworkers. Oh, yeah. There's clients. There's lodge owners. And I changed everyone's name. Yep, it's brilliant. Yep, I yep. love it. But yeah, some people definitely know who they are. Yeah, you know who you are. You know who you are. I'm talking <laughs> about you. But I I went to try and go work for a different lodge the next year because okay. I wanted to you know move up in the world, make four dollars an hour exactly. And, yeah, okay. And uh, and my then former boss uh, threatened to sue me and the other lodge because he had a very strange clause in his contract that said I couldn't guide within a hundred miles of his lodge. Oh, get real. Okay. Yeah. No. And it never would have st- stood up in court, but <laughs> like it wasn't a non-compete worth it. Clause? Yeah, it was a non-compete clause. Oh, get real. Oh, yeah. No, it never would have stood up in court, but the other lodge was like, I don't want to hire you bad enough to go to court to get you. Mm. So, sorry, you're unhired. Oh, ouch. And the next day, that former boss called me up and said, so now we got that out of the way. How about you come back on and be my head guide? What did you say? Oh, God. Oh, God. I, I said, no, I can't do that. But I then... I needed. I was totally screwed because I had like no job and no time to get it. So I did end up going back and oh. for him. And then that was the first time he threatened to sue me. <laughs> the when the book was coming out, he got word of it and uh, and was certain that he was being painted in a negative light, which yeah, probably which, was. I mean, I, I le- to be fair, like I honestly did not make it a book complaining about my boss. No, I didn't read it that way. And and so many of the things that, that could have fit into that category, I chose to omit. Right. Because that's not what it was about. It was about the experience, and, and no one wants to read you bitch about your boss. Everybody's got a boss they hate. Yeah, no, I didn't take it like that. Yeah. So, but he was worried that I had, you know, spent the whole thing bad-mouthing him and whatever. So he contacted the publisher. He talk, called up Tosh and said, hey, I uh, hear you're going to publish this book. You know, I should get a look at that before you, before you publish it so I can make sure it's, you know, accurate. Yeah. And Tosh said, I'm not going to do that. And then he flipped out and started telling Tosh, he, I can't remember all the things he accused me of, but apparently I was a, an alcoholic, a drug addict, and a, a, a pathological liar. Okay. And Tosh As said. As you would be if you're writing about somebody. Of course, yeah. yeah. Tosh said, you know, I'll take my chances with him. Can you sue someone for libel if your name isn't mentioned? He tried, or he threatened to. But can you? Is I don't possible? know. I have no idea. I'm not I'm not much of a legal scholar. Yeah, I'd be curious. Yeah. But no, I definitely didn't take it like probably that. Probably if you could be logically traced back to you with some ease, you probably could. Right. But I, what I really enjoyed about your book was just the honesty and how you were feeling and how the days, I mean, they just, some days were so invigorating and some days were so draining and there's obviously such a mix of guests. I loved reading about your guests and you didn't just bitch. I mean, you praised, you, you just painted a picture and it was just a very colorful picture. That's what I took from the book. It was just a really honest view on a guiding season. Like a lot of people who reach out to me and actually I get probably that more than ever with this podcast is, you know, how do I get into being a professional angler? How do I do this for a living? And I say two things. One, listen to the podcast and listen to various, you know, professionals in the, in the industry to get, you know, their story. And two, read this book because you'll get a really good idea on what it's like. It's not all butterflies and roses, but yeah. it's not all, you know, it's not all thorns either. No. So. And I, I've, I've heard from many, many young people over the course of the last 10 years since I wrote it for mm. exactly that. 
you know, reaching out for advice, reaching out for to thank me or to tell me, man, wish I'd read your book before I took that job, you know, for a variety of different things. But yeah, I got to talk to a lot of different people. So but, that's the three that's three years there. Yep, that was three years there. And then and then I was done. And uh, I've been guiding in Montana ever since. Okay, and now you get to live, so you get to go home after. Yeah, I get to sleep in my own bed. Mm-hmm. It's really nice. Okay. Uh, but it's it's different. It's not like guiding in Alaska. And, um, you know, I did, I, I really kind of changed course after that. I went to graduate school. Um, after? After the book. Really? Yeah. Okay, what prompted that? So I guided full-time for, I think, five years. And to be perfectly honest with you, I looked around, I took stock, and I... I realized, well, I wondered, I looked to see if there were any guides I knew of who were over 50 who had a life that I envied. Yeah. And the answer was not entirely no, but generally not. By and large, I didn't know very many older guides who had a life that I would want. They usually don't have any money or any yeah, savings. No money, no savings. Their no wife usually. <laughs> yeah. They can't keep they can't keep relationships together. Their body's falling apart. They got no money. And they're bitter. Yeah, totally. That's what I found too. Cause I had the same revelation when I was like, how long do I really want to guide for? Yeah. Do I want to be guiding when I'm 60? Yeah. And there are, there are exceptions, mm-hmm. but, but by, and I, what I had a moment of like, what makes me think I'm going to be the exception? Uh, okay. That's what, excellent. That, that doesn't make any sense. So, um, what had happened was actually many years earlier, I, I had this realization of, you know, the moments of you figure out what you want to do with your life. At one point when I was waiting tables, one of my good clients or good customers was the Dean of Students at Montana State. Oh, okay. And she asked me pretty bluntly, you know, what the hell are you doing with your life? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm having a great time. Fishing a lot, hunting a lot, skiing a lot. Things are good. And she gave me a job, a part-time job at the university Work in the dean of students' office, counseling at-risk first-year students. What is an at-risk first-year student? A first-year student who is failing classes or not showing up for class or various other metrics that make them look like they're probably going to drop out because then the university loses revenue. You don't want that. <gasps> oh, very interesting. Okay, yeah. got yeah. it. Um, but I love doing that, and she had me co-teach a class with her, a writing class. Yeah. And I loved it. And I thought, man, this is something I should consider doing, but... I was I was younger at that point, and I had taught right out of college, so I knew I, I, I liked it. Anyway, I decided I'm going to go to graduate school, and I'm going to really focus on writing. I'm going to focus on teaching writing, and I want to teach writing and write. This is what I want to do. So I did that, and I got my master's degree, and then I got a full-time position at Montana State in the English department on faculty. No kidding. Yep. What year was this? Uh, let's see. I graduated. I finished my master's degree in 2011. Okay. And immediately started teaching piecemeal and working in the writing center and wound up being one of the administrators of the writing center at one point and then got full-time on with the English department and in the writing program. And I did that for six years. So I taught full-time up until um, last, not, not two falls ago, I guess. It would have been fall... 2016, I guess, was okay. when I was the last semester I taught. And I ended up leaving it. Unfortunately, um, couldn't make enough money teaching at the university level at an adjunct position to really make it worth my while, in addition to the fact that I had more and more things coming up on the writing side that I wanted to explore. And my wife and I had been long distance for a long time, so it made sense that I should change things up. And so I did. So I left the university. And I hope I get to go back and do that again. Why? 
I love teaching. Couldn't you teach anywhere though? Is it the university teaching in particular? Yeah, it is the for me. Right. For me, I, I don't think I'd do very well at the high school level. It's too much like babysitting. Yeah. Um, I, at, at the university level, I can say, I don't care if you don't show up to class. You'll fail, but that's not my problem. Go ahead. Right. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. And I, I really, I really enjoy. I get, I get a lot of satisfaction out of teaching, and particularly teaching writing and communication. That's something that I think is important. I feel like I'm doing something that, that matters. I feel like I'm working on a project that has broader value than just making me happier. Right. Taking somebody fishing, but throughout all of this, I've been guiding as well in the summertime. How so, do, oh, in the summertime. Okay, yep. so when schools shut down, you're out guiding. Yep. Okay, where does the magazine enter here? I I, I was doing freelance magazine work pretty much all the way from I think 2005. I started and right. kept building that, and I published pretty consistently in the Drake, and I was starting to publish pretty consistently in Flyfish Journal, and then it was. It was when I was in graduate school. I want to say it was 2010, maybe 2011. I'd have to go back and look. But uh, Jim Babb, who was the managing editor for Greatest Sporting Journal for many, many years and a legend in the industry, also wrote the uh, the fishing column for Gray's. And to quote him, he said he got tired of reading himself, and so he fired himself as the oh, fishing columnist right. and went on a hunt for another fishing columnist. And interviewed or had I don't know how many people send in sample columns and I really didn't think I had to just to get asked to me felt like a really big deal because I was still I felt fledgling in the the industry of, of writing yeah and Grace has fantastic writers yeah and and Grace is is in many ways the sort of the literary journal of of fly fishing and hunting yeah and, and so just to have someone like Jim Babb ask me to do this felt like such an honor. And then to get the job, I think I was 30 when I got the job. I, that's so young. I would, yeah. I mean, I think I was the youngest person on the greatest staff by a couple decades. And what was your role there? Was it to be the fly fishing columnist or was it an editing role? It's just, I, I, it, well, the, I'm still in that role. And it's the, my title is angling columnist or angling editor, excuse right. me, but what that means is I write the, the angling column. And so I'm responsible for seven columns a year. And when I was hired uh, by Jim, who unfortunately is not doing it anymore because he's retired and is working on other projects, but he told me, this is, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you what subjects to write about. That is up to you. You have to be able to figure out what to write about. You have to turn in seven columns a year. They have to be on time. They have to be in the word count and they have to be exceptional. The rest is up to you. Okay. So this is not a full-time job. No. So where are you at today with your career? I mean, obviously you're freelancing, mm-hmm. um, but you'd mentioned some video. Yeah. So about a year and a half ago, I was I was actually working on a story for American Angler about the situation in the Bahamas with all the different regulations coming up and and how that was it was it was a significant story. What re- what regulations? Just if you could quickly let me know. Yeah. So when the bah- this is such a long story, uh, but when the Bahamas tried to institute regulations for controlling recreational fishing on the flats, and I needed some photos found a photographer whose name I kind of knew, but I couldn't figure out why. And he had some of the photos I needed. And he wrote back to me and said, yeah, yeah, I got you on that. But I want to talk to you about some other projects because I'm really not doing still photography anymore. I'm I'm really full-time into video production and I'd love to chat. So that's R.C. Cohn, who's become a good friend of mine and a collaborator. He's done some 
fantastic films. He did a few years ago, you might have seen one of the films. Uh, Yao was on the film tour, and it was about the the Icelandic surfing and fishing for brown trouts all at the same time. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he did one called The Accord, which was really about the first Icelandic uh, professional surfer. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, he's he's super talented. We got together and we started talking, and we both were of the of the same mindset that. And this is not a dig on anyone in particular, but a lot of fly fishing films lack any sort of narrative development. I'm over it. I cannot watch another fish jump and have that be the entire premise of the show. I mean, tell a story. This right here, this is the conversation that RC and I had in a bar. Yeah. And when we were like, we should work together. We should figure this out. We had no actual work at that point, Mm -hmm. but we wanted to. And so we collaborated and I said, I'm down to work with you, but I've, I've, you know, in the past, to talk to some other filmmakers who weren't actually interested in storyline. So, if fish porn, we need yeah, more, fish, more porn. fish porn. Oh God, it's the story of my life. Go. <laughs> okay, I, so, so yes, if I'm going to work with you, like I'm going to insist that like there's narrative development and arc and character. And it's like, thank you. You I just want. said, I mean, arc. People don't even. They're like, arc. What's an arc? You like, know, is like that the thing Noah was on? Yeah. Is, right. that, is that like the loop? <laughs> right. I like a tight one. Oh God. Okay. So you understand stories. I I do very much. That stories of storytelling is what I do. Okay. Great. And I think I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> I think so. Um. So yeah, and we teamed up about a year ago, and now we're doing content films for Sage, for Yeti, for Reddington. Wow. Good for you guys. Yeah. Okay, so you're doing this and the, the freelance writing. Yep. And guiding part-time. Yep, and I've started working, uh, the other area I've really been developing is working with conservation organizations in the sports and sporting world. So um, I've worked on some projects with backcountry hunters and anglers. Oh, cool. Um, and, and some other smaller groups, and that's an area I'm also really hoping to develop in terms of freelance because it's something I can feel really good about. It's work I want to do. It's important work and, and it's work that needs to be done well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's really exciting. How old are you? 38? I'm 38. Okay. So can you see yourself doing that when you're 60? Absolutely. Good. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, I, I think that if I can, I've never really been one to say I'm going to have this career I like having, I like doing the work that I'm doing and figuring out what the next thing is. And I don't know exactly what the next thing is, but right now I'm really enjoying developing, understanding film writing because I'd never done that before. Mm, it's totally different than writing a book. It's so different. Because mm-hmm. if you, yeah. when I wrote my television series, I would read it as, I mean, I'd first, at first I would write it as if I was writing a book. And then I'd read it back after I would do the VO and go, oh my God, that sounds ridiculous. Ridiculous! I have to totally make this way more casual, or else it just sounds like you're trying to be too, you know, too poetic. And totally, it sounds really silly. Yeah, no. What what looks really good on paper and read out in your head sounds overwrought and obnoxious when you read it out loud. Doesn't it? Yeah, though? it does. Yeah, and it's not just the developing the voice; it's it's visual storytelling. It's, right. Okay. How can I how can I get this out without saying anything? Yeah. Because the medium is visual. So how do we create what we want? How do I create the the experience of the reader saying as little as humanly possible? Totally, because if you have too many words, A, you don't have the time allotment for it. No. And B, you'll just you'll lose your 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 viewer because their brain is so fixated on watching what's in front of them. Right. Yeah. And so I've I've really enjoyed doing that. And most of the films that we've been doing have been you know, more documentary style based on actual characters. Oh, right. So I don't know if you saw the the one that Sage put out recently, the slowdown that featured Gray Struznik on the OP. I did, yeah. Yeah, so that was one of ours. Oh, wow. Okay, all right. Now I've got some context yeah. there. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, and the the one that is on the tour right now that for the Yeti sponsored about um, the about Vala. I'm not going to be able to say her last name, even though she's our main character. I know her. This incredibly dope Icelandic woman who is an absolute badass. Oh, I'm going to have to watch this. Um, it's on the tour right now. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I'll check it out. And and then once the tour finishes, it'll be on the Yeti channels, perfect and Yeti stories, and all that. So. Uh, it's been so fun to get to profile these different people and try and learn their stories and and to build that part out because mm-hmm. that's a, a part of writing storytelling that I've always really enjoyed doing and figuring out, okay, what's going on with this other human being that's fascinated me and how can I put that into a context that someone else can easily understand in a short time period and, and, right. and f- connect with the significance of it. Is any of this inspiring you to write another book? I've written a couple, and to be honest with you, the book market is <laughs> yeah. very tight right now. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, it's just, it's really hard to, it's hard to make the margins work. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, this isn't anything against any publishers or anybody else, but I, I I wrote a couple of different manuscripts that were well-received but never published, mm-hmm. and um, and so ultimately never finished because I would get partway through them and send them off, and it just... Looks great, but we don't know how we can make money off of it. Because as you know, prints already pretty small, and then fishing prints pretty mm. small, and then fly fishing print. It's it's tiny. Yep, I do know. Going through it right now. Yeah. Have you ever thought about screenwriting? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I have I have thought about so many things, April. And yeah. yes, <laughs> I mean you're <laughs> under the age of forty. There's so many things around your corner. Yeah. I I don't know what direction all this goes. To be perfectly honest with you, I, in my career, if I have a goal, it's to I feel like I have done pretty well. At one point, my goal was like, man, I want to be a, a successful whatever that means fly fishing writer. And now I'd really like to be known just as a writer. I love writing in the fly fishing world, but I think that the work that I do. And particularly the essays that I write are, well, everything I write, I think fly fishing is the frame, but the, what I'm trying to tackle is not about the fishing. I think we're all just so bored of the fish porn that we all are just desperate for stories now. Yeah, I think I think that's true in the film. And I think that in terms of the, the written side, we're, we're both bored of like the pastoral really slow reads and this is nothing about you know i i love tom mcguane yeah. I, I really <laughs> don't think i ever want to read the longest silence again i love the other work that he's done i love his newer novels and stuff like that but that that voice of really kind of methodical plotting slow fly fishing writing has been done and as has the oh my god the next big trout secret. I, I don't ever want to read that <laughs> article as long as I live, and I certainly don't want to write it. So, what else have we got? I think I think we're those of us who are still doing it need to find ways of, of appealing to a faster paced audience that wants stories yeah. and cares about fishing, but but sees fishing more as a frame to get into life, drama, and humanity. And that's what I hope I do when I do it well, anyway. <laughs> And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to leave a review about Anchored online.